Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Bad Philosopher Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Levesque, and today we've got a little bit of an exciting episode. We're going to be talking about catastrophic events. We're going to be talking about the rise and fall of civilizations. We are going to be talking about the myth of Atlantis. Now, I want to preface this episode by saying that natural disasters are a visceral part of our collective human memory. Going back to when I was a kid in elementary school in the 1990s, I remember learning about the eruption of Mount St. Helens. It was such a well-documented event that there were a lot of videos available to show to us kids. I guess they wanted to instill a fear of the natural world in us from a young age. In class, we got to make our own little papier-mâché volcanoes and stage eruptions using a combination of baking soda and vinegar. And of course, part of the fun we had was taking a bunch of little army men and placing them around the volcano as a sort of human sacrifice. But before we got to that stage, of course, we made sure to also stage a little battle on the slopes of the volcano for fun, where the winning side won the prize of being roasted alive by our fake lava. Now, all of this stuff really helped volcanoes and Mount St. Helens in particular stick in my memory as a kid. Maybe part of the allure to this eruption was that it didn't happen that far away from me, just a few hundred kilometers south across the United States border from where I lived in British Columbia. So while my little model volcano was a fun game, I mean, the real thing wasn't all that far away. About 20 years later, while I was on a road trip down in the United States, I made sure that we took a little diversion to make a stop at Mount St. Helens to check it out in real life. We went to this spot where there is an underground lava tube that had been turned into like a tourist attraction, and we walked through this huge, naturally formed underground tunnel, a place where just a few decades before, lava from the eruption had flowed through violently. Now this little experience here also shows how dumb we are about these kinds of things, about natural disasters. I mean... Nature shows us all the time how violent and deadly these large-scale disasters can be, and then here we are going and turning them into attractions to trot all over. The thought did cross my mind here while walking through this giant lava tube. I mean, what if this thing suddenly erupts again and lava starts flowing and we get roasted alive here in this underground tunnel? I mean, how stupid would that be? Like, ah, these idiots just walking through a lava tube and being drowned in lava, like, serves them right. Just like those army men we placed as a sort of human sacrifice at the base of our little fake mountains, but in this case, we're real-life people in this lava tube, treating it like it's an amusement park. And it wasn't just volcanoes. Also, living in the Pacific Northwest, there was this awareness that we were due for what they called the big one. The the big one is this hypothesized earth-shattering earthquake that would cause regional devastation throughout the Pacific Northwest because we live on a tectonic fault and, as a result, such a thing is inevitable, I guess. At some point there's going to be a slip of that fault and that's going to result in a gigantic earthquake. Also, in school, when we were done playing with our little fake volcanoes, we got to enjoy regular earthquake drills where we clambered under our desks in search of cover. I recalled that I didn't have too much confidence in my school's ability to remain standing if a big earthquake did hit us, so I secretly thought up a plan to dart out the door and outside as quickly as possible if the real thing did happen. 
Fortunately, though, I guess you could say that old school burnt down a few years after I left it. And now there's a new one that they built there that looks a lot more earthquake-proof than the one that I went to as a kid. So, from a young age, I was imbued with a healthy fear of earthquakes and volcanoes. And then in my teen years, I got a new thing to worry about. Just a few months after my old elementary school burnt down, one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history occurred. The 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people across Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand, and leaving millions more people homeless. Now, similar here to the videos of Mount St. Helens erupting that I'd watched as a kid in school, this disaster too was well documented. There were a ton of videos and images of the devastation, and even of incoming walls of water headed straight for the beach with people there watching. And here the internet was a great resource. There was a lot of material that you could find online, and these surreal images they were very surreal at the time because tsunamis weren't really in the public consciousness back then. But after this, they sure were. And around the world, they started implementing early warning systems that could detect potential tsunamis before they made landfall. But then also in 2011, this worry about tsunamis was reinforced by this huge Japanese earthquake and tsunami that killed another tens of thousands of people and led to the nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima power plant. And this too was terrifying, the idea that a natural disaster could also cause a catastrophic nuclear disaster. Luckily, though, the fear of mass deaths as a result of released radiation never materialized, though in the public imagination we still have an insane amount of fear around the idea of nuclear contamination. I mean, thanks Chernobyl for that. Now, all of these natural catastrophes, it's, it's like we're being stalked by land and by sea. We've got volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, and all of these things have plagued humanity and plagued life on Earth for eons. And all of them, too, go hand in hand. They're all about geology. A large enough volcano can cause a volcanic winter, which can lead to mass starvation of life on Earth and mass extinctions. And accompanied by gigantic volcanoes can be gigantic earthquakes that cause regional devastation. And then tsunamis can be generated from either of these things, from a, a volcano on a coastline or from an earthquake. And tsunamis can strike distant coastlines. They can strike across oceans. Tsunamis in particular might have had the biggest impact on human beings as we migrated around the world. Volcanoes are pretty sparsely populated and they don't erupt so frequently. They generally also give off warnings before any sort of catastrophic eruption takes place. And this would give time for any human beings in the area to get away from them and avoid them. There's usually a lot of rumbling before there's a bunch of lava and ash spewing into the air. And you don't have to go too far to be at a relatively safe distance when it comes to volcanoes. Also, earthquakes, I mean, prior to the dawn of complex civilization where we started building precariously situated structures all over the place, earthquakes might not have been such a big deal for human beings either. The best place to be in an earthquake is outside and away from large structures. Well, through most of human history, that's exactly where we would have been. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors wouldn't have been at any particular risk of earthquakes. They wouldn't have needed to do earthquake drills and 
try to take cover under desks and tables. I mean, they didn't even have buildings to worry about. Though surely the rumbling ground here would have really freaked them out from time to time. What our ancestors would have been most vulnerable to was tsunamis. It's thought that as humans migrated out of Africa and spread across the globe, they largely followed coastlines. And this makes sense for a whole bunch of reasons. Coastal areas provide a stable bounty of food, and it's also striking how good humans are in the water, despite not having obvious visible adaptations to aquatic life. Like, we don't have webbed feet or fins like so many aquatic animals do, and yet, compared to many other predominantly land-based creatures, we're very competent at swimming and diving to impressive depths, which would have aided our search for food along coastlines. Also, there are fewer dangerous predators and creatures that roam coastlines in general. Whereas the interiors of every continent on Earth would have been inhabited with terrifyingly large and dangerous animals, that's not the case for coastlines. So it seems plausible that for early human migrations across the world, we would have predominantly navigated along coastlines and made camp along coastlines on our journey while also frequently venturing inland for better hunting and gathering opportunities, we might not have made our home far from the sea. We might have preferred to stick by the water, especially when going through unfamiliar terrain or unfamiliar areas. Now this preference for sticking close to these coastlines as we migrated out of Africa and across the world, this would explain the lack of artifacts that we find in relation to this human migration, I mean, thousands of years ago, there was a land bridge between Russia and the Americas that humans were able to just walk over, because sea levels were lower. During the last ice ages, sea levels would have been over 100 meters lower than they are today, because so much more of that water was locked up in ice in the northern hemisphere. Now, if human beings largely made their camps, or maybe even built settlements along coastlines, say, 10,000 years ago, well... Fast forward to today, and those locations are now under 100 meters of water, of seawater. Most traces of this migration are probably lost as a result of rising sea levels over the past several thousand years. And just imagine all of the archaeological sites from coastal human migration that are now probably buried beneath the ocean and just eroded and dissipated over time. There's probably no trace left in most cases. In general, the sparsely located Paleolithic sites that we do find from this time period of this migration out of Africa, they would have all been located quite a ways above sea level and away from the oceans. Also, these coastal migrators and any early human settlements on the coast would have been particularly susceptible to tsunamis. Now, tsunamis have the unique feature of being able to show up almost without warning. A large earthquake can trigger a tsunami thousands of kilometers away, where the people wouldn't feel the ground rumble. Instead, they would see the ocean drop lower than they'd ever seen it drop before, lower than the lowest tide they'd ever seen, revealing a bounty of food in the form of sea life that's been left behind, now exposed and flopping around on the sand. And not too long after that, a, a rushing of a giant wave would sweep in to consume everyone. So if you think about it, a tsunami is like a perfect enemy to any hunter-gatherer that's living sort of hand-to-mouth. First, says someone on one of these coastlands, you would see the ocean disappear. 
and a bounty of food basically present itself to you. All of these creatures that were previously hidden beneath the ocean, they're now exposed on the beach. You can walk out and grab them as you wish. But if you go for it, if you go chase after this bounty of food, you seal your fate. The waves will soon return, and they'll return with a vengeance. Counterintuitively here, survival would require that you run away and move uphill as quickly as possible. In a sense, nature here is presenting you with a hook and a lure. It's providing you with this bounty of food, but if you take it, you're sealing your fate. It's interesting here to read accounts of how almost every culture on Earth has stories of a great flood of some kind, of rushing waters that come in and consume unaware people. And in particular, a lot of the time, an explanation for why this great flood occurred has to do with hubris or greed. And this matches the context of Paleolithic experiences of what a tsunami would be like. The ocean recedes, exposing a bounty of food to you. And if you greedily, I guess, as the stories might go, you greedily run out to reap the benefits of this bounty, and then you're swallowed by the sea. This lesson could very well have made its way into human storytelling as a way to guard against this type of disaster from happening to people's descendants passed on from grandparents to grandchildren. You know, like, hey Jimmy, if you ever see the ocean suddenly disappear and a bunch of tasty-looking creatures exposed out on the beach for you to just go up and grab, well, instead of going for that food, go grab all your brothers and sisters and run for the hills as fast as you can. That's the type of thing you would want your children to remember. And they best remember it. I mean, societies that didn't have these stories wouldn't have fled, and they might have succumbed to the waves, to these tsunamis. Societies that did have some sort of a flood myth of this sort would have survived these events. And hence, through the process of survival by elimination, the societies that have survived to the present day probably have some sort of flood myth in their cultural lexicon. Culturally, we see these flood myths in ancient Mesopotamian myths, in the Bible, in Hindu mythology, in Chinese mythology, throughout Polynesian cultures, in Mayan myths and in various indigenous cultures of the Americas, and in some aboriginal tribes in Australia. Now, these stories are too pervasive in human cultures to not serve any sort of purpose. For example, by communicating to future generations to be wary of receding waters in the following tsunami and to be wary of heavy rains that could cause massive floods, and so on. Now, probably the most famous flood myth of all time comes down to us from the ancient Greeks. And this is the myth of the lost city of Atlantis. And it actually comes down to us from one of the most influential philosophers in all of history. Probably around the year 360 BC, the philosopher Plato wrote two works, one called the Timaeus and one called the Critias. Both are named after two different characters that appear in both of these texts. And basically, the Timaeus and the Critias are just two dialogues, two of the many dialogues that Plato wrote. The Timaeus is an attempt to explain the nature of the physical world and the reason for its existence, and the Critias takes the form of a history that recounts how the great island kingdom of Atlantis tried and failed to conquer the ancient Greeks and how Atlantis was then swallowed by the sea as retribution for their hubris, their arrogance and excessive pride at how great their civilization was. 
In some ways, this is sort of like an origin story of how Athens rose to prominence many, many years ago. Unfortunately, the ending of the Critias, which goes into detail of the demise of Atlantis, is lost. The text is no longer with us. So we just have general statements about how Atlantis was swept away by the waves. And this whole situation is sort of ironic and fitting, that the details of how a lost kingdom was destroyed and lost have been themselves lost to history. And this is something that happens a lot with ancient texts. It's difficult to preserve them through millennia, and it's actually quite common over time to lose all or portions of ancient texts, ancient works like this. Now, this fact also probably contributes a bit to the mythology around Atlantis, the fact that we at one point had more written material about Atlantis, but that over the ages a lot of that material has been lost. And because of how influential the philosophy of Plato was to the ancient world and even the modern world to this day and how seriously it was taken, this myth of Atlantis has been taken by many to be a mythology of a real place that did exist at one point. A place that may have sunk beneath the waves as a result of a great earthquake or a tsunami or both. Now, most of our modern philosophy can trace its earliest origins back to Plato's writings. I mean, this guy produced a lot of material, and he set the foundation for ideas like justice, morality, politics, the origins of truth and knowledge, and the limits of reason. A lot of Plato's writings blend allegory with historical truths. For example, in one of his famous works, The Symposium, there's a whole bunch of eminent Athenians at the time all getting together and debating this idea about the nature of love. This gathering includes eminent philosophers, poets, artists, generals, politicians, and they all come together to sort of have this hearty debate amongst themselves. Now, there isn't any historical evidence that this specific gathering actually took place or that these figures actually said what they're purported to have said in Plato's dialogue. But all of the characters themselves are real people, and events like this of people coming together is documented as something that really happened. There's no question about these things. What is in question, though, is how much of this dialogue between these great Athenians is made up and how much is based in the facts of what they actually said. Now, it seems the majority of Plato's characters in his many dialogues are representations of real people, real Greek people who did really live. Now, whether they actually said any of the things that Plato attributes to them as having said is unclear, but the fact that they were real people is well established, and much of what is said in these dialogues isn't necessarily out of character for these people either. Separating fact from fiction here can be difficult, and we're talking about events that happened, say, 2,400 years ago. Maybe here Plato has recorded in the essence of what these people said, but maybe he's embellished a little bit for a dramatic effect or to spin a better tale. And so too this might have happened with the myth of Atlantis, which Plato put into writing about 2,400 years ago. In this work, a tale is recounted of how a Greek statesman named Solon journeyed to Egypt, where, when he was there, he heard the story of Atlantis from an Egyptian priest. Now, this would have happened a little over two centuries before the time Plato actually wrote this dialogue. According to the historical record we have from Herodotus and from Plutarch, 
It does appear that this statesman, this Athenian person named Solon, did actually travel abroad for about 10 years, and in that time he did travel to Egypt. So the historical setting here being relayed by Plato in this dialogue may very well be accurate, though it's not clear as to whether the dialogue itself really did happen. Also, an interesting historical note here is that Diogenes Laertius, the biographer of the ancient Greek philosophers, he notes that Solon's brother was actually an ancestor of Plato himself, about six generations removed. So there are two possibilities here. Either Plato is making up this whole myth of Atlantis thing, or maybe he's simply relaying a tale that was told to one of his own ancestors. Now another ancient source, the Roman biographer and historian Plutarch, says that Plato himself also traveled to Egypt at one time to converse with the priests there. So it could also be that Plato heard the story of Atlantis firsthand, but chose to relay the story through a bit of an allegory using this historical setting of Solon. I mean, Plato himself never appears in any of his own dialogues, so it might make sense as a literary mechanism to use some other character to relay this story. So, when it comes to the story of Atlantis itself, this story is relayed to Solon in Plato's dialogue by an Egyptian priest who seems to be someone who's responsible for archiving and maintaining ancient knowledge. So this is sort of like a Library of Alexandria situation. The Egyptians here are maintaining detailed records and storing them. And it's through this work that the Egyptians come to know a lot of details about ancient history. Now, of course, the Library of Alexandria is infamously burned down many centuries later, and a significant number of historical works is forever lost to history. Now, it's interesting to think if some manuscripts with more details about Atlantis were lost along with the burning of the library. Sort of a sad thing to think about. Like when my elementary school burned down, for example, there were some lost records of its history that dated back almost 100 years. Also some time capsules that never got opened, and they burned down too. But I mean, this is nothing compared to the loss of, say, the Library of Alexandria. Losing this would be like if all of the information on the internet was permanently deleted and could be never be recovered. An almost unfathomable loss. Now I'm sure there are some listeners here smiling at this idea, this idea of resetting everything to zero, of deleting the internet and starting from scratch. I mean, maybe you are some kind of barbarian that hates the accumulation of knowledge and wisdom because it's just too overwhelming, it's too much information. And I mean, this is a similar sentiment that the Christians who had the final library of Alexandria burned down would have held. If you don't like some of the big words in those texts, just burn them all. And as a result of these actions, many historical manuscripts might have been lost forever here. Anyways, throughout the ancient world, Egypt was known as an ancient civilization and a center of learning. The Greeks and Romans learned a lot from the Egyptians. Getting back here to Plato's Timaeus, in this dialogue, this Egyptian priest relates to Solon that Greek civilization dates back some 9,000 years from their time but says that most of its history was forgotten through the millennia because, apparently, there are often these great cataclysms that destroy humanity and wipe away all of their accumulated knowledge with them. This is an interesting premonition regarding the book burning that would happen centuries later in Egypt. 
But here, the priest is referring to natural disasters rather than human actions. So this dialogue between the Egyptian priests and the Athenian statesman Solon is taking place about 2,600 years ago, according to Plato. In around the year 600 BC, let's say. And this priest says that while the Greeks have lost their historical records and cultural knowledge due to these occasional disasters, that this hasn't necessarily happened with Egypt. Egypt has been able to preserve detailed records of these ancient civilizations, such as Atlantis and what happened with ancient Greece, ancient as in before Plato's time. Here, the priest explains, quoting from Plato, The reason for this is that the human race has often been destroyed in various ways, as it will be in the future too. Though there have been countless causes of briefer disasters, fire and water have been responsible for the most devastating catastrophes. For instance, you have a story of how Phaethon, Scion of the Sun, once harnessed his father's chariot but was incapable of driving it along the path his father took, and so burnt up everything on the surface of the earth and was himself killed by a thunderbolt. This story has the form of a fable, but it alludes to a real event, the deviation of the heavenly bodies that orbit the earth and the periodic destruction at long intervals of the surface of the earth by massive conflagrations. So this is interesting here, isn't it? The description of this myth and this Egyptian priest saying that the story itself is in the form of a myth, but it alludes to a real event. And here there's this description of this god, Phaethon, and Phaethon is the son of Helios. Helios is the sun or the god of the sun. Now in Greek mythology, the sun moving across the sky is actually a great flaming chariot being driven by the god Helios. And in this particular fable, the priest is recounting how in Greek myth, the son of Helios named Phaethon takes the reins of this chariot and attempts to control it, attempts to drive it along the sky like his father does. But Phaethon is not a powerful god like Helios. Phaethon loses control of the chariot, and the chariot drives itself too close to the ground, scorching the surface of the earth. Zeus sees this happening, and he decides to put this to an end by killing Phaethon with a lightning bolt. This is an interesting allegory, and it sounds to me sort of like an asteroid strike. Now imagine a flaming asteroid streaking across the sky. It would look an awful lot like the flaming sun. It would look like Helios' chariot roaring across the sky. And then if this flaming asteroid were to explode in an airburst, it would cause a massive, a devastating boom, like the sound of thunder magnified a hundredfold. And events like this do happen, and they have even happened in recent history, such as over the skies of Siberia over a a Russian town, where an asteroid, a smaller asteroid, came into the atmosphere and exploded and caused a whole bunch of damage and injured some people. Now, these kinds of things aren't super uncommon. They could have happened in ancient times. The ancient peoples would have witnessed these things and not known how to describe them. They didn't know what an asteroid was. But they, they did know what the gods were. Now imagine the sight of this asteroid flaming across the sky and then exploding with this gigantic boom. I do wonder how the ancients would explain such a thing. I do wonder if this myth about this god Phaethon trying to drive his father's chariot of the sun, accidentally driving it too close to the earth, and then being destroyed by a lightning bolt sent from Zeus, Could this be a myth that's attempting to explain some observed phenomena, like an asteroid airburst? 
an asteroid streaking into the atmosphere and exploding high up in the sky or something like that, causing this gigantic boom that the only thing people can relate it to is like the sound of a ferocious thunder, like from Zeus, the god of thunder and lightning himself. Anyways, the priest goes on further. The priest says, and I quote, What happens in your part of the world and elsewhere, however, is that no sooner have you been equipped at any time with literacy and the other resources of city life than once again, after the usual interval, a heavenly flood pours down on you like a plague and leaves only those who are illiterate and uncivilized. As a result, you start all over again and regain your childlike state. So this is a very interesting passage from Plato. I mean, a text written 2,400 years ago talking about how as human civilizations have come and gone in the past, have gained knowledge and literacy, they've then been met with some sort of catastrophe that basically resets them back to zero. So there's this sort of cultural idea of lost knowledge, lost ancient wisdom. And here this Egyptian priest mentions how illiterate people get left behind because... These conflagrations destroy cities, and cities are centers of learning. All of the literate people live in the cities, and if the cities are destroyed, then what you have left is the illiterate people living out in the rural areas. And he does relate some more specifics in another passage the priest says, and I quote, In one of these conflagrations, all those people who live in mountainous regions and in places that are high and dry are far more likely to die than those who live by rivers and the sea. But when the gods purge the earth with a flood of water, it is the herdsmen and the shepherds in the mountains who are spared, while the inhabitants of your cities are swept into the sea by the rivers. So here we have two different types of disasters creating this dichotomy. Sometimes it's the rural mountain people, the pastoralists that suffer, like maybe with a drought or a heat wave or wildfires. I mean, who knows what these calamities are? And in other times, there's maybe a great flood. It's the people in the cities near the coast that die, leaving behind only illiterate people living in these rural mountainous areas. The priest says that it's this cycle of rising and falling ancient civilizations that hasn't happened in Egypt. He cites something about the Nile River being the reason for this, but the context here isn't very clear. But what is clear is that the priest says that fire and water are the leading causes of this destruction, and this makes sense in a few contexts. For one, we have volcanic eruptions that represent a great fire burning up from beneath the earth, and volcanoes are represented by mountains, hence the allusion to mountain people killed by fire. And also, a volcano or earthquake can generate a great tsunami that wipes out coastal settlements, hence the idea of people who dwell near the sea being susceptible to destruction by water. We could also cite asteroid impacts here. For example, an asteroid hitting Earth would cause great regional destruction and ignite fires, potentially lighting up the sky with a sudden reddish doomsday-looking glow. Or if an asteroid lands in the sea, it could cause great tsunamis that wipe out coastal areas. Now I find this whole idea to be fascinating, this idea that human civilizations of the past have endured great catastrophes that have destroyed cities and settlements or caused great upheaval. And because these ancient people didn't understand what was happening to them, to them it just seemed like some great conflagration, maybe a punishment sent their way by an angry god or something like that. 
For the Greeks in particular, all sorts of phenomena can be described by referencing the gods. Tsunamis sent by an angry Poseidon, who is also the god of earthquakes. Which makes sense that Poseidon is responsible for both earthquakes and tsunamis because of their geological connection to one another. Also, the god Vulcan is the god of both fire and of volcanoes. Zeus is the god of the sky and of lightning and thunder. For example, an asteroid airburst exploding in the sky could devastate a region, and this could be explained by alluding to Zeus, because such an explosion would sound like a great thunder, or a thunderbolt. Also, a burning asteroid zipping across the sky could be explained by this allusion to Helios' chariot falling from the heavens above and scorching the earth. Here, maybe we see signs of human civilization trying to preserve these tales of destruction through oral storytelling and mythologies. Just as Solon's Egyptian priest says when the people in the cities die, only the illiterate mountain people remain. And these illiterate people can only relay these oral stories to their descendants. No written record here is preserved. Everything has to be passed down by word of mouth. Now, only about a decade before Plato wrote his works, the Timaeus and the Critias, and relayed this myth of Atlantis, a disaster befell a Greek city maybe only a few hundred kilometers from Athens. As these historical records relate, one night at the city of Helike in northern Peloponnese, a powerful earthquake struck and destroyed buildings, killing many of the people living in this town. Shortly after, a giant wave came and swallowed the city and all of its surviving inhabitants. Now this might be a bit of an embellishment of what really happened. Some archaeological evidence points to the fact that the town wasn't completely destroyed and was still possibly inhabited for many centuries onwards. But regardless, the ancients talk about this devastation of Helike as being total destruction even saying how when people from nearby towns came to the aid of residents at Helic, they weren't able to find anyone or recover any bodies. Presumably, they had all been taken away by a tsunami. Now, this event being contemporary with Plato might have given him some inspiration for the Atlantis myth. But there also is a much larger and more catastrophic event that predates historical records. And it could be that this event was transmitted down through the ages orally, and that Plato then went on to write it down with a little bit of embellishment. Now, a few years ago, I was in Greece on my honeymoon. And while there, we visited the island of Santorini, which is basically the remnants of a gigantic volcanic caldera from a huge volcanic explosion that happened there about 3,500 years ago, so about a thousand years before Plato wrote about Atlantis. Now, while on Santorini, I drank a lot of wine. The grapes that grow here are very unique due to the volcanic soil on the island. They have a very strong minerality to them. I became a little bit of a wine connoisseur while I was there. But I didn't just go there to drink wine and eat cheese, I also visited two different ancient ruins. One on a mountaintop, and one that was buried in pumice and ash for millennia. The buried city is the most ancient of the two. When the volcano at the center of Santorini erupted about 3,500 years ago, the inhabitants were forced to flee and the city was completely buried in ash and pumice. 
As a result, though, it's one of the best-preserved ancient cities in Greece because it's only very recently been excavated, and the excavation is still ongoing. While I was there to see it, the people were still actually carrying out archaeological work, excavating the site itself. So what happened here on the island of Santorini was very similar to what happened with Pompeii in Roman times, though maybe less sudden and dramatic. I don't think they found any preserved bodies buried in the ash here on Santorini. It seems like people had time to actually flee. At the time that this eruption occurred, there was a civilization on the island of Crete called the Minoan Civilization, and they were the most advanced civilization in Europe. The Minoans were also the first complex civilization to arise in Europe, at least as far as we know. Now, Crete is located only 100 or so kilometers south of the island of Santorini, where this huge volcano erupted. The Minoan civilization at the time inhabited many Greek islands, and this city on Santorini that was buried in ash was one of the Minoans' settlements. Now, when this volcano in Santorini violently erupted, it drastically changed the island itself, and a large tsunami was generated. This tsunami would have traveled south, slamming into the coastline of Crete and many other Greek islands in the area. Since the Minoans were an island maritime nation, they had an extensive fleet of ships and primarily consisted of coastal settlements throughout this entire region throughout the Greek islands, around the Mediterranean. Here, even a moderate tsunami would have been absolutely devastating to the Minoans, wiping out a significant number of their settlements. Basically, this eruption on Santorini struck at the very heart of the Minoan civilization. And to put the size of this eruption into context of, say, modern eruptions, there is a scale of volcanoes called the Volcanic Explosivity Index that's sort of similar to how we measure earthquakes. For example, a magnitude 6 earthquake is 10 times as powerful as a magnitude 5 and 100 times as powerful as a magnitude 4. Now, similarly, the Mount St. Helens eruption registered as a 5.1 on this Volcanic Explosivity Index scale. To compare that, the Santorini eruption is thought to have been around a 7 on this scale, so about 100 times more powerful, or with about 100 times more material being ejected from this volcano than was ejected by Mount St. Helens when it erupted. Now unfortunately, while I was here on Santorini, I didn't find any ancient lava tubes to walk in, but we did go on a day-long hike around the caldera, along the famous cliffs of Santorini that overlook the volcanic crater in the center. And to put this scale here in some perspective, it took us about four hours of walking to cover maybe a quarter of the caldera. We walked from one town to the next along the cliffs. I mean, this thing is a gigantic volcano. If you didn't know that it was a volcano, you might not even register because it just looks like a bunch of islands gathered together. But once you know, you can clearly see the volcanic caldera. It's a perfectly circular caldera poking out of the sea. Now this natural disaster seems to have been a major contributing factor to bringing down the Minoans, the greatest civilization of their time. Eventually, Crete was conquered by the Greeks much later, after the Minoans went into a steep decline following this volcanic eruption. Now, the mountaintop city I visited on Santorini was a town called Ancient Phera. It came into existence after this huge eruption, I think a century or two after it had ended, 
and it was also started by the Minoans, it appears, though it was also inhabited at different times by the Greeks and the Romans. Now, being up there in person, the city itself on this mountaintop is actually pretty big. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you could have that much stone, that many structures up that high. And it looks like it was a pretty sizable settlement. And it's a very interesting location, given that the mountain paths to get up there are extremely steep and it takes a really long time. Not necessarily the optimal location for a city, for a maritime civilization where most of your trade is carried out by sea, I would think. And that means every time you want to go somewhere or you arrive from somewhere, you have this massive mountain to climb or to descend every time you want to get to the sea. But I guess if you were to place this city in the context of a civilization that had just suffered a massive tsunami, then the placement on top of a mountain makes a heck of a lot of sense. Lessons learned from past calamities, I guess, right? Now again, this event happened about a thousand years before Plato's writing about Atlantis. And Santorini is located just a few hundred kilometers from Athens. It would be shocking if Plato had never heard of this kind of disaster. And if this tale of this great calamity was somehow passed down orally, then Maybe this too was part of the inspiration for Plato if he did in fact conjure up this Atlantis myth based on similar events. Or perhaps, maybe the myth of Atlantis, as related by the Egyptian priests, is actually factual. Maybe such a kingdom did exist, and maybe it wasn't the Minoans. Maybe more than one complex civilization has gone extinct as a result of some great disaster. Now, let's get into the myth of Atlantis itself and what went down between the Athenians and the Atlantans. And according to this Egyptian priest, this is a very old story. According to their records, as relayed by this priest, Athens was apparently founded 9,000 years prior to the time of this dialogue. So this dialogue is taking place around 600 BC. This would mean that, according to this Egyptian priest, the city of Athens dates back as far as 9600 BC, or, based on today's date, 11,600 years ago from the present day. That is a long, long time ago. Now, interestingly, this priest also says that the Egyptian culture itself is 8,000 years old. So the priest here is saying, is telling Solon that Greek culture predates Egyptian culture by about a thousand years, which is kind of stunning. In Plato's time, it was widely known that the Egyptians were an ancient civilization and presumed that they were much older than the Greeks. So to have this priest tell Solon that the Greek culture, the origins of the Greek culture, actually predates the origins of the Egyptians would have been stunning to anyone in Plato's time. Now, from historical records, we know that a unified Egyptian kingdom first formed around the year 3000 BC, so 5,000-ish years ago. And the Egyptian civilization reaches its peak between about 1500 to 1000 BC. Which is interesting because the Minoan civilization started going into a steep decline around 1500 BC, following the eruption of the Santorini volcano and the ensuing tsunami. So here we can sort of match up the timeline of Egypt's rise to its peak at the same time the Minoans were going into a decline. And they were also neighbors. I mean, the island of Crete is just a few hundred kilometers northwest of Egypt. 
So it would kind of make sense that if the Minoans go into a decline and lose influence around the Mediterranean, this void that's left behind gives room for a younger, new kingdom like Egypt to swoop in and fill that void. Now, by the time Plato writes his Timaeus Dialogue in around 360 BC, Egypt is already a very, very old civilization. And it's unclear how much the Greeks knew of the ancient Minoans. But nobody in Plato's time would have thought that the Greeks were an older culture than the Egyptians. This revelation would have been a strange one. Now, I, I did go ahead and Google this, and I found that apparently our modern archaeological records do show that Greek Neolithic culture, so the very beginning of agriculture, started up in Greece around 7000 BC. And in Egypt, this seems like it might have happened around 6000 BC. So this is kind of interesting that these estimates are separated by about a thousand years, and it matches up with what the Egyptian priests told Solon, that the Greek culture is a thousand years older than the Egyptian culture. I mean, this statement seems not totally inaccurate. Maybe the years are a little bit off, but the general sentiment there kind of holds true. Anyways, this Egyptian priest also goes on to relate the finest achievement of the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks before Plato's time. He says that Egyptian records show that the most admirable thing the Greeks did was hold off an assault by the Atlantans. He says, and I quote, Our documents record how your city once halted an enormous force that was marching insolently against not just the whole of Europe, but Asia as well from its base beyond Europe in the Atlantic Ocean. On this island of Atlantis, a great and remarkable dynasty had arisen, which ruled the whole island, many of the other islands, and parts of the mainland, too. They also governed some of the lands here inside the strait, Libya up to the border with Egypt, and Europe up to Etruria, which is Italy. Upon a time, then, they combined their forces and set out en masse to try to enslave in one swoop your part of the world, and ours, and all the territory this side of the strait. And here by the strait, he's talking about the Strait of Gibraltar, so inside of the strait is anything inside the Mediterranean area. Apparently, the island and the city of Atlantis existed beyond the strait, so outside of the Mediterranean and somewhere in the Atlantic area. From here, the priest relates how the Greeks fought incredibly bravely against the superior forces of the Atlantans, and how the Greeks almost lost, but at the very last minute they were able to defeat and overcome the Atlantans, and basically send them running with their tail between their legs back out beyond the strait, so back out into the Atlantic Ocean. The Greeks here saved the day. After relating how this went down, the priest goes on, and I quote, some time later, appalling earthquakes and floods occurred, and in the course of a single, terrible day and night, the whole fighting force of your city sank all at once beneath the earth, and the island of Atlantis likewise sank beneath the sea and vanished. Let's recall first that in all, 9,000 years have passed since war was declared between those who lived beyond and those who lived within the Pillars of Heracles. So here the priest is confirming that this event, this war between the Atlantans and the Greeks, this took place 9,000 years ago. And he also says something that's shocking, that at some point, the forces of the Greeks, they 
sank beneath the earth. So there was some calamity, some earthquake that caused the army of the Greeks to be destroyed, to sink beneath the earth. And that for Atlantis itself, it sank beneath the sea, sank beneath the waves, and was never seen again. So here, the priest is very clearly saying that 9,000 years ago, this momentous war took place. And the timing of this is interesting. Now, there is a modern hypothesis, and there's some geological evidence to support this, that some fragments of a large asteroid, more than four kilometers in diameter, maybe an asteroid or a comet, this asteroid or comet broke into pieces and struck the surface of the Earth at various points around the same time. Fragments of this gigantic asteroid or comet might have struck North America, South America, Europe, and West Asia approximately 12,800 years ago. Now this is according to our geological record. The data on this isn't yet settled, but there is strong evidence for a large impact to have occurred at around this time frame. This is known as the Younger Dryas Impact Theory. So if we extrapolate backwards, this would have taken place at around 10,800 BC. And this isn't too far off from the priest's dates, the dates given by the Egyptian priest. The priest says that Atlantis would have sunk beneath the waves at around 9,600 BC. And here we have modern geological evidence showing this great calamity, this asteroid impact, all over the surface of the Earth happening around 10,800 BC. So the dates here are off by about 1,200 years, which honestly is conceivable when we're talking about events that took place 11,000 or 12,000 years ago. It makes sense that you would have trouble keeping exact dates and maintaining a, maintaining a detailed record over that amount of time. Having some drift of a few hundred years or a thousand years in the context of 10,000 years, that, I mean, that makes sense. That seems reasonable. Like, we don't even have the complete works of Plato's texts preserved. We've lost some fragments of them, so... I mean, what's a thousand years between friends in the archaeological record, you know? And to me, rather than just taking this myth of Atlantis literally, I would wonder instead if... Maybe this myth in Plato's dialogue might be carrying some ancient memory of this cataclysmic event. Like, could a large asteroid impact have caused a tsunami that swept away some ancient human civilizations that predated the Egyptians by many thousands of years, also sweeping away any record of their existence? Could the Egyptians have somehow maintained some sort of a record of a lost civilization like Atlantis for thousands of years before relating them to Solon and then down to Plato? The intriguing part of this theory is the mention of those dwelling in mountains. These would have been rural, illiterate people. They would have been pastoralists who were able to live off the land. Now, imagining a large asteroid impact, if a global winter-type scenario did occur, cities would not be able to survive. Cities would starve to death. Most agricultural production would have been impossible. It's likely that the only people that would have survived in a disaster like this would be people who were already living these hunter-gatherer-type pastoralist kinds of lives. Maybe people living in sparsely populated mountainous areas or living far away from the cities where they still might have access to abundant resources that could see them through a harsh, prolonged winter that spans many, many years. 
And this is all interesting to me because I feel like there might be some truth to this. There might be some truth to what the priest is relating, whether or not the Atlantis myth is based on a real civilization called Atlantis or based on real events. The ideas behind the myth might be grounded in fact, but just fictionalized and turned into a sort of a story over time. Instead of a story about an asteroid striking the Earth and devastating human civilizations, it's been turned into a story of warfare between two great civilizations and then a resulting calamity that sees one of those civilizations swallowed up by the sea. Maybe as some sort of a retribution from the gods. Maybe that's how the ancient peoples would have explained this kind of thing. Of course, though, there's also the alternative here that everything here about Atlantis is totally made up by Plato. Or maybe like some other aspects of Plato's dialogues, maybe the events are based on historical events like the disaster at Helike or the eruption of the Santorini volcano, but the facts of the story are being altered and obscured in order to relay some sort of a moral tale. Now, many of these flood myths throughout different cultures do carry a moral tale with them. For the Atlanteans, it seems that the calamity that befell them was a result of their hubris, their arrogance, and their pride, and their greed at wanting to conquer other lands, such as the lands of the Greeks. The Atlanteans thought that they were such a superior, such a great civilization that they deserved to conquer the known world. And when they tried and they were rebuffed by the Greeks, they were then punished by the gods, maybe punished by Zeus. We don't know the full story because the dialogue, Plato's Critias, the ending of it is missing. We don't know exactly what went down between the gods and this lost city of Atlantis. Now, culturally, human beings are amazing storytellers. We are able to take real events and fictionalize them, mythologize them, make them interesting. And the more interesting the story, the more likely it is to be remembered, the more likely it is to be passed on. So it makes sense that a lot of these myths around natural disasters or floods also carry a moral tale with them. Now I, for one, do think that we should put more stock in ancient myths than what we currently do. While they might sound outlandish and ridiculous, that is by design. They've been created by ancient peoples with a limited understanding of the natural world, trying to make sense of the odd things they've experienced over the millennia, and trying to file these away as stories that they can pass on to their descendants. Now regardless of whether the Atlantis myth is true or not, it, it does have some grain of truth to it. And that truth is that catastrophic events do happen, and that humanity has always been plagued by natural disasters. Since prehistoric times, we've been stalked by these catastrophes that come from land and sea, and maybe even from outer space, from the cosmos, in the form of asteroid impacts, for example. Now, it is up to us to heed this ancient wisdom and to prepare ourselves before we ourselves sink beneath the waves and are swallowed up by the ocean, like the lost city of Atlantis. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Bad Philosopher Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support our work, you can do so through Patreon. You can find a link in the description below. So, thanks everyone for listening, and I'll see you all in the next one.